This is a recording of I Have Revealed Your Name, The Hidden Temple in John 17 by William Hamblin. Originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 1, Issue 1, 2012, pages 61 through 89, read by Brad Haymond. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Abstract John 17 contains a richly symbolic last discourse by Jesus in which the disciples are assured a place in the Father's celestial house or temple. To fulfill this promise, Christ reveals both the Father's name and His glory to His disciples. Jesus' discourse concludes with the promise of sanctification of the disciples and their unification or deification with Christ and the Father. This paper explores how each of these ideas reflect the temple theology of the Bible and contemporary first-century Judaism. Introduction One of the most important trends in the past decade of Johannine studies is the increasing recognition of the centrality of temple theology in the fourth gospel. While John 17 has been called Christ's high priestly prayer since at least the 16th century, recognition of this chapter's temple theology is often not fully appreciated. John 17 should be contextualized within the larger Passover narrative of the last days of the life of Jesus. In John 11 and 12, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, followed by his anointing by Mary of Bethany, and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In John 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, which parallels a temple ritual, since feet needed to be clean before entering the temple precincts. As the Mishnah emphasizes, a man, quote, may not enter into the temple mount with the dust upon his feet, close quote. Then, on Passover Eve, Jesus gives his last discourse to his disciples, found in John 13 through 17. John 17, the conclusion of this discourse, is an extended prayer in which Jesus blesses the disciples. It is immediately followed by Jesus' departure to Gethsemane, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. John 17 thus holds a central position in the gospel the transition point between Jesus' mortal ministry and the return to the celestial glory of the Christ. In this regard, John 17 serves as a symbolic temple for the Gospel of John. It is the meeting place of heaven and earth, where man encounters God. In this paper, I will briefly examine six temple themes in John 17. Theme 1. My Father's House the temple context of John 17 is made explicit at the beginning of the last discourse in John 14:2, where Jesus says, quote, In my Father's house are many rooms, or monopoli. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Close quote. The only other use of the phrase, My Father's house, by Jesus, occurs in John 2:16, where, during his purification of the temple, Jesus objects, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. When Jesus says my father's house, it is his unique way of saying the temple, since God is his father, and the temple was commonly known in the biblical traditions as the house of God. 
So the most straightforward reading of John 14:2 is that Jesus begins his last discourse saying that there are many rooms in the temple and he is going to prepare a place for his disciples there. What does Jesus mean when he says that his father's house has many rooms or monai polai, the plural of monai? Of course, in a purely practical and material sense, the temple of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus did indeed have many rooms and courts as can be seen from the detailed descriptions found in Josephus and the Mishnah. But on the eve of his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is not saying that he is going to the physical temple to prepare a place for his disciples. In the next verse, John 14:3, he makes this clear. Quote, if I go and prepare a place, or topos, for you, I will come again, and will take you to myself, so that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way, or hodos, to the place where I am going. Close quote. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Close quote. In a sense, then, the rest of the last discourse, John 14 through 17, is an answer to Thomas' questions Where are you going? and What is the way there? The answer is that Christ is returning to the presence of his Father in the celestial temple and the way there is the Christian way, or hodos. Remember that Christianity was originally known as the way in the first decades before non-Christians started calling Jesus' followers Christians in Antioch. The way of Christ is the way to the presence of the Father in the celestial temple, as is expressly stated in Hebrews 10, 19-20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The phrase, where I am, occurs four times in the New Testament, only in John, and always is a technical term describing Jesus' return to the Father. Jesus repeatedly claims that he has come down from heaven and that the Father has sent him. He also frequently alludes to returning to him who sent me, ho pemsantame a clear allusion to the Father. In Greek, where I am is hupu emi ego, and may be related to the esoteric I am, or ego emi, statements of Jesus in John. Jesus tells his disbelieving critics, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. On the other hand, he states to his disciples at the beginning of his last discourse, where I am, there you may be also. Likewise, at the close of the last discourse, Jesus prays that the disciples may be <clears throat> Jesus prays that the disciples may be with me where I am to see my glory. The where I am language clearly refers to being in the presence of the Father in heaven. Thus, as I understand these passages, the Father's house is the temple to which Jesus returns to the Father's presence. In the context of first-century biblical traditions, this can only mean the celestial temple. If most modern Christians were to consider where the Father dwells, they would probably say in heaven. By this, they generally don't mean the visible sky, which is the literal translation of the biblical terms for heaven, but an ultra-dimensional place beyond time and space. On the other hand, if you were to ask a first-century Jew or Christian where God dwells, they would undoubtedly respond in his temple in the sky. The vast majority of modern Christians have lost an understanding 
of the mythos of the celestial temple, even though it is central to the biblical traditions. The Hebrew Bible Psalm 11.4 is explicit. Yahweh is in his holy temple, Hekel. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. The psalmist likewise tells us that God has looked down from the height of his holy place or temple, Kodesh. From heaven Yahweh beholds the earth. The clear idea behind these passages and related passages is that God dwells in a temple in heaven. If anything, this idea is even more clear in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews 8 through 10, and in scattered passages throughout the book of Revelation, which is set almost entirely in the celestial temple. This is where Christ is going to prepare a place for the disciples, who are called the pillars in the temple of my God, who will sit enthroned beside the throne of God. As a brief digression here, it is worth noting that recent studies of early Jewish mysticism, known as the Hekelot tradition, also demonstrate the importance of visionary experiences of the throne of God and the celestial temple among Jews in the first few centuries after Jesus. From these and related texts, we are now able to better understand first-century Jewish ideas about the celestial temple and throne of God as a context for related early Christian concepts. If we read John 17 in this context, its temple motifs become quite significant. Thus, the last discourse of Jesus is framed at both the beginning and end by two where-I-am temple statements, telling the disciples in John 14.2 that Jesus is going to prepare a place for them, so that in the end they will be with Jesus in the celestial temple and see his glory. This explicit framing of the last discourse with temple imagery should alert us to the probability of additional temple language and motifs throughout John 17. Theme 2. Revelation of the Name of the Father In John 17, Christ is given the name of the Father by the Father, and later reveals or makes known this divine name to the disciples. How would a first-generation Jew have understood this claim that Jesus knew and revealed the name of the Father? In Old Testament traditions, God personally revealed His true name, Yahweh, generally anglicized as Jehovah, to Moses, claiming that before the time of Moses, God had not been known by this name, Yahweh. Up to that point, the name of God had been secret. Israel thereafter makes its covenant with Yahweh, to only worship Yahweh your God. At the same time, God also revealed another name to Moses, I Am. The importance of the divine name Yahweh is found throughout the Hebrew Bible. Israel is consistently commanded to call upon the name of Yahweh. Likewise, they are to glorify or praise the name of Yahweh. Hymns praising the name Yahweh are found throughout the Psalms. Many Israelite names are theophoric, and include the name Yahweh in personal names in one form or another. The divine name is also found written in ancient non-biblical sources from Israel, including inscriptions, letters, and seals. As far as we can tell, there was originally no prohibition against writing or saying the name of Yahweh in ancient Israel, only against blaspheming or misusing the name, or falsely claiming to speak in the name of Yahweh. A major transformation in Israelite name theology, however, occurred in the Second Temple period, between the conclusion of the Hebrew Bible and the time of Jesus. 
restrictions on the ritual writing and pronunciation of the name Yahweh developed by at least the 3rd century before Christ. Instead of actually pronouncing the name Yahweh when reading scriptures or praying, Jews increasingly used the Hebrew Adonai, which becomes Kurios in Greek, both meaning simply Lord. In Hebrew biblical manuscripts from this period, they often wrote the name of God in the Paleo-Hebrew script, indicating its special status and unique pronunciation. By the time of Jesus, many Jews had begun to simply say Hashem, or the name of God, when they came across the name Yahweh in reading a text. An early form of this practice can already be found in Leviticus 24:11 and 16, where an Israelite is described as blaspheming the name, or Hashem, meaning the name Yahweh. These practices still continue among Orthodox Jews today, who, when reading aloud or speaking the name Yahweh, will say Adonai, Hashem, or vocally spell the name yod heh vav -Heh. These practices derived in large part from contemporary interpretations of the biblical prohibition against taking the name of Yahweh your God in vain. There was a rabbinic inclination to make a hedge for the law, which is to say interpret the law in the broadest sense possible to prevent one from even coming close to breaking a commandment. From fear of inadvertently taking the name of Yahweh in vain, Jews increasingly refused to say God's name at all. The transformed nature of this prohibition is clearly reflected in interpretations of Leviticus 24, 11-16. The Hebrew text of verse 16 reads, Whoever blasphemes or slanders the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. But the Greek Septuagint, reflecting Jewish beliefs and practices in the 2nd century B.C., reads, Whoever names the name Onomatson de Toonoma of the Lord, Kurios, shall surely be put to death. In other words, an original prohibition against misusing the name Yahweh had become transformed by at least the 2nd century B.C. into a prohibition against even pronouncing the name at all. The rabbis creatively misread Exodus 3.15 along similar lines. There, Yahweh is to be God's name forever, in Hebrew, Leolam. The rabbis, however, vocalized the word Leolam as Lealem, meaning concealed. Thus, they took this passage as a command to conceal, rather pronounce, the divine name revealed by God to Moses. This is part of the rabbinic tradition of God's hidden, unpronounceable, and ineffable name, the Shem HaMephorash. This phrase is not found explicitly in the Hebrew Bible, but derives from an Aramaic Targum interpretation of Judges 13.18, where an angel asks, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful, or Hebrew Peli? The Aramaic Targum of Judges, however, translates wonderful as meparash, or ineffable, meaning that the name of God is unpronounceable or unknowable. There are two exceptions to this general prohibition against naming the divine name. The first and foremost was the pronunciation of the name Yahweh by the high priest in the temple on the Day of Atonement. The biblical text of the Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16 does not mention a specific benediction to be said in the name of Yahweh. 
our information on the ritual pronunciation of the name on the day of atonement comes from the mishnah a collection of rabbinic oral traditions recorded around a d two hundred when the priest and the people which stood in the temple court on the day of atonement heard the expressed name yahweh come from the mouth of the high priest they used to kneel and bow themselves and fall down on their faces Close quote. the book of the wisdom of sirach fifty also contains a detailed description of the day of atonement ritual performed by the high priest simon the just which likewise mentions the people prostrating themselves at the mention of the name just as described in the mishnah the talmud records a tradition that after the death of simon people ceased to speak the name aloud the name of yahweh was also invoked during the daily recitation of the priestly benediction described in numbers six twenty two through twenty seven the mishnah tells us that when the priests pronounced this blessing quote, in the temple they pronounced the name as it was written but in the provinces by a substituted word close quote, probably hashem or adonai the talmud a fourth to sixth century a d commentary on the mishnah describes this practice our tarfan said i once ascended the dais of the temple and inclined my ear to the high priest and heard him swallowing or whispering or pronouncing indistinctly the name yahweh during the chanting by his brother priests if this report is accurate it means that the name may have been whispered or mumbled so that only nearby priests could hear it distinctly but not the people receiving the blessing thus not revealing the sacred name to the non-priests when the temple was destroyed and the ritual pronunciation of the name ceased priestly and rabbinic scholars preserved the correct pronunciation for several centuries by whispering the name to their disciples once every seven years but eventually the correct pronunciation of the sacred name was lost it is in this context of jewish name theology that we need to examine john's account of jesus revealing the name of the father while blessing his disciples by the time of jesus there was a strong tradition of the sacred secrecy of god's name which could only be pronounced by priests in the temple in the context of first century judaism then when jesus reveals the name of the father he is acting within the framework of two important biblical traditions first the revelation of the names yahweh and i am to moses on sinai making jesus the prophet like unto moses to whom god revealed his name second for a jewish reader the claim that jesus revealed the name of the father to his disciples would also imply that jesus claimed the authority of the high priest to reveal the name reflecting the divine authority or exousia jesus claims in john seventeen two, where the father gives jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life he was thus acting to bring about the eternal atonement and reconciliation of israel with god in time these traditions of the secret name of god would develop into widespread name mysticism in judaism christianity islam and related magical traditions the paradox here is that jesus does not actually reveal the name of the father in john seventeen six and twenty six or anywhere else for that matter rather he simply says that he already has revealed it now it may be that the name is not explicitly mentioned in john 
precisely because the divine name that Jesus revealed cannot be made public. Knowing that Jesus revealed the name to the disciples is enough. On the other hand, it is possible that the divine name Jesus revealed is the word Father, for early Christians prayed and performed their rituals and liturgy not in the name of Yahweh, though their use of kurios or Lord probably implies this, but expressly in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Theme 3. Christ as the Manifestation of God's Glory In John 17.1, Christ prays, May you, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son might glorify you and adds that he has glorified the Father upon the earth. What is this glory, and how does Jesus glorify the Father? In Greek, the verb to glorify is doxatso, meaning to praise, honor, extol, or make glorious or splendid. The nominal form doxa means brightness, splendor, radiance, magnificence, greatness, honor, fame, or prestige. While human beings, such as kings, can have glory, to fully understand the background of the idea of glorification in John 17, we need look at the concept of glory in the Hebrew Bible. In the Septuagint, the Greek word doxa, or glory, generally translates the Hebrew term kabod. Thus, the ultimate background for the glorification language in John is the technical meaning of the phrase, the glory of Yahweh or Kabod Yahweh, in the Hebrew Bible. In its most narrow and technical sense, the glory of Yahweh is the visible manifestation of the presence of God in the temple or tabernacle. This glory of Yahweh is most clearly described in the great theophanies at the tabernacle and temple. It is represented as a blazing fire or a dazzling light, though often enshrouded in a cloud. In Ezekiel's version, the shining anthropomorphic figure on the chariot throne is explicitly called the glory of Yahweh, implying that the kabod, or glory, has a human form. For Ezekiel, the departure of the glory of Yahweh from the temple is tantamount to its desecration, leaving it ripe for destruction by the Babylonians. When Moses saw Yahweh on Mount Sinai, the kabod, or glory, was so overwhelming that Moses' face was transfigured, thereafter reflecting God's glory and forcing him to wear a veil to protect the Israelites from its stunning radiance. In this context, when Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, or character tes hypostasios, it is simply a way of saying that Christ is the glory of Yahweh, which is to say, the physical and visible manifestation of the presence of God on earth. On the other hand, on occasion the prophets proclaim that God's kabod, or glory, is not restricted to the temple, but fills the whole world. There are a number of ways in which John describes the glory of Jesus. Christ had glory with the Father before the world was. Christ's glory comes from the one God, but his glory is the glory of the one Son, or monogenos. The miracles of Jesus manifest God's glory. When John describes Christ as the light of the world, the overall context probably has at least partial reference to God's shining glory, or kabod. This is reiterated by the fact that for John, glory is something that can be seen, 
the Father gives his glory to the Son, who will in turn give it to the disciples. On the other hand, the ultimate glorification of Jesus will only occur after the resurrection, for during his mortal ministry he was not yet glorified. What does it mean that Christ glorifies the Father? Christ does not make God more glorious, but reveals God's already existing luminous glory to an uncomprehending world. When the Father makes the Son glorious, the Son thereby reveals the glory of the Father. One element of this concept is that the resurrection will reveal the glory of the Son, and thereby the Son will reveal the ultimate glory of the Father. Quote, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Close quote. In other words, there is a reciprocal glorification of the Father and the Son. The glorification of Christ also comes in part through his departure out of this world, where his glory is masked, and his return to the glory he had in the celestial temple with the Father before the world was. With this ancient temple context, for the idea of kabod or glory in mind, we can examine the importance of the concept in John 17. Remarkably, six of the 26 verses of John 17 speak of glory and glorification. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. All mine, the disciples, are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The glory that you gave me I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This glorification language in John 17 has three themes. 1. Mutual shared glorification of the Father, Son, and His disciples. 2. Through this mutual glorification comes mutual oneness. And 3. The disciples will be where Jesus is, in the presence of the Father, where they will see Christ's full glory. Among first-century readers, this glorification language in John 17 would have, evoked, would have evoked ideas of God's glorious theophanies in the temple, and Christ's post-mortal glorification by the Father would imply a glory theophany in the celestial temple. Theme 4. Expulsion of the Evil One one of the unique rituals of the Israelite Day of Atonement was the scapegoat, or Atzazel, described in Leviticus 16. While the precise meaning of Atzazel is debated, the most widely accepted interpretation is that it is a name of the demonic power. This is also reflected in the Second Temple pseudepigraphic literature, especially First Enoch and the Apocalypse of Abraham. The sins of Israel were transferred to the head of the goat, which was driven into the wilderness for Atzazel, representing the expulsion of sin and evil from the community of Israel. This rite is a prerequisite for the purification of Israel in preparation for the visitation of Yahweh with the high priest in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle or temple. At the culmination of the ceremony, 
the high priest entered the holy of holies and made atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly thereby reconciling israel with god what does all this have to do with john 17 in john 17:15 jesus asks the father to protect the disciples from the evil one in greek hoponeros Quote, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, or cosmos, but that you protect them from the evil one, or hoponeros. Close quote. This phrase is often understood by modern Christians as a prayer for protection from evil in an abstract sense. But in its first century context, hoponeros meant the evil one, that is, Satan. This is made clear by a quick survey of related New Testament descriptions of Satan. The evil one here is described elsewhere in John as the Archon tu Cosmu, the ruler of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul calls Satan the god of this age, or Theos tu Ionos. First, John tells us that the whole world, or cosmos, lies in the power of the evil one. At the beginning of the last discourse, Jesus says explicitly that the ruler, or Archon, of this world, or cosmos, will be cast out. Because Satan is cast out by Christ, the disciples are protected from his power, as described in John 17:15. The ritual expulsion of evil from the community of Israel was symbolized in ancient times by the temple scapegoat ritual. With evil banished, the community could be purified and prepared for the presence of Yahweh. Likewise, by casting out the evil one and atoning for sin, Christ prepares the disciples to be where Christ is, that is, in the celestial temple with the Father. Theme 5. Sanctification or Consecration of Christ and the Disciples With the expulsion of Satan, the stage is now set for the sanctification of the disciples. The concept of sanctification is an important one in the Israelite temple mythos. Fundamentally, anything associated with the temple or the presence of God must be holy. There are many examples of this in the Hebrew Bible. The Israelites were required to consecrate themselves for the Sinai Theophany, including washing themselves and donning clean garments. Aaron and the Levite priests must be consecrated to serve in the tabernacle. Sacrificial offerings made to God must be consecrated. The tabernacle, temple, furniture, utensils, and clothing associated with it must likewise be consecrated. The verb in most of these passages is kadesh, which means literally to make something kodesh, or holy. Unfortunately, because of the nature of English, we often use several different words to translate this one idea, consecrate, make holy, and sanctify, and their variants. In most English translations, these three different English roots nearly always translate the Hebrew Kodesh in its various forms. Holiness language is temple language. The Septuagint, the ancient Greek Bible, consistently translates Kodesh as Hagios and its variants. In other words, throughout the Hebrew Bible, everything associated with the temple must be consecrated or made holy. Only rarely do we find things not closely associated with the temple described as being consecrated. Fundamentally, language of holiness, sanctity, and consecration is the language of the temple. 
This language is consistent throughout all books and periods of Israelite history. Why is this important for our understanding of John 17? These verses contain the following prayer by Jesus, quote, Sanctify the disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Close quote. That is to say, Jesus sanctifies himself so that the disciples may become sanctified. This is, of course, precisely what the high priest does in the Day of Atonement ritual. In a ritual of consecration, the high priest first washes himself, dons holy garments, then offers a bull for a sin offering for himself. In other words, he first sanctifies himself, after which, in his sanctified state, he can officiate in the temple to sanctify the community of Israel through the other Day of Atonement rituals. Christ's language here parallels that pattern. He says explicitly, For their sake I make myself holy, or hagiatso, the singular present active, to consecrate myself, sanctify myself, so that they, the disciples, may be made holy, or hegias menoi, the plural passive, consecrated, sanctified, in truth. To first-century Jewish readers, this language of consecration would have evoked the temple, with its rituals of purification, consecration, and atonement. Theme 6. Celestial Ascent and Unification, or Deification The last temple theme I'd like to discuss is the idea of celestial ascent and unification with God, found in John seventeen twenty through 24 This passage is the culmination of Jesus' prayer and final discourse, and I believe it defines the ultimate purpose of his mortal ministry. Quote, I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Close quote. This passage describes three interrelated themes, glorification, ascent, and unification. First, I have already discussed the importance of the idea of the glory of God and its relation to the temple. Here, however, the focus shifts from the mutual glorification of the Father and the Son to the Son sharing His glory with the disciples. As Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The idea here is not that the disciples merely see or recognize Jesus' glory, Rather, they are given the glory by the Son, precisely as the Son is given the glory by the Father. Why is this glory given? That there may be one, even as we are one. Why is this glory given? That they may be one, even as we are one. That is, being given the glory of Jesus is a necessary prerequisite for unification, 
the third theme I'll discuss in a moment. Second, Christ prays that the disciples may be with me where I am, to see my glory. That is, Christ is not fully glorified until after his resurrection and ascent to heaven. Only when the disciples are where he is can they fully see his glory. As I discussed earlier, the temple is the place where we see the glory of God. The language describing Jesus' descent to earth and return to the Father in the Father's house with many rooms alludes to the celestial temple. Here Jesus is praying that the disciples may be where I am, that is, ascend to heaven. This is generally understood by modern Christians to refer to the post-mortal ascent of the soul to God as is implied in John 13:36, where Jesus tells Peter, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Where Jesus tells Peter, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward, which means presumably after death. However, in the context of the first century, visionary ascent by mortals to the heavenly temple was a widespread belief and practice among both Jews and Christians. This is most clear from the book of Revelation, in which John has an explicit vision of the temple in heaven. Paul also famously describes his visionary ascent to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 1-9. Early Christian literature likewise contains numerous accounts of celestial ascent, as do the contemporary Jewish texts of Hecalot and Merkabah mystics, written after the destruction of the temple. In AD 70. Jesus' call to his disciples to come to where he is going to see his glory fits well into this mythos of ascents to the celestial temple. Third, the unification language in this passage is powerful and direct. Jesus prays that the disciples may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. They may be one, even as we are one and that they may become perfectly one. Christians have been exploring the meaning of this glorification and unification language for 2,000 years, and many different interpretations have been offered from different perspectives and periods. I suspect it can only be fully understood by one who has actually attained that state. But what is clear is that according to John 17, the disciples can somehow receive the glory of God and become one with the Father and the Son. Many early Christians believed that this and related language in the New Testament describes what they called theosis, or deification. The Greek Orthodox tradition has retained the most continuity with this ancient Christian idea. Among Catholics it has largely faded into a vague background, while many Protestants are unaware that deification is an important ancient Christian idea. Basically, many Protestants see the idea of the deification of man as challenging the omnipotence of God, whereas many Greek Orthodox see the deification of man as the ultimate manifestation of the omnipotence of God. Nevertheless, several allusions to deification are expressed in the New Testament. In Revelation 3.21, Christ tells John, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I, Jesus, also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. The idea that the righteous disciples will sit enthroned with God in the celestial temple in heaven, based on Psalm 110, 1, 
is also found elsewhere in Revelation, as well as in the Gospels. For many early Christians, this idea of synthronos, or enthronement beside God, can only be an allusion to deification. Paul makes this rather explicit. Quote, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Close quote. Note here that seeing the glory of the Lord, Jesus, transforms us into that glorious image, just as Jesus says in John 17:24, where the disciples go to where Christ is to see and receive his glory. First John also describes it, when Christ appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Paul teaches that the disciples can become heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and can share the likeness of the image of the Son. Second Peter describes this as becoming partakers of the divine nature, or theias fuseos. As I understand it, this glorification, ascent, and unification language in John 17 and elsewhere in the New Testament is describing the ultimate goal of Christian theosis. But that is another paper. For my purpose here, it is sufficient to recognize that ascent to the celestial temple to see the glory of God is a key concept in the first century temple mythos, and thus further reflecting the centrality of the temple in John 17. Conclusion Although the word temple is never explicitly used in John 17, the temple mythos is foundational to this chapter. We have seen that the last discourse begins with Jesus preparing a place for the disciples in the Father's house, or the celestial temple. When Jesus reveals the name of God to his disciples, he is acting in the context of first-century temple name theology, that restricts pronunciation of the name to the temple. The temple was the site of the manifestation of the glory of God. The expulsion of evil and sanctification of the disciples likewise alludes to temple rites. Finally, the celestial ascent and glorification of the disciples is closely related to the mythos of ascent to the celestial temple. In conclusion, the temple mythos is central to John 17 and it is thus rightly called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. This has been a recording of I Have Revealed Your Name, The Hidden Temple in John 17, by William Hamblin, originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 1, Issue 1, 2012, pages 61-89, through 89, read by Brad Haymond. For more information, please visit mormoninterpreter.com.